And I would invite everyone else to please turn uh, in God's Word to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are a lot of them in the seats in front of you. And I'm not sure the exact page number, but probably about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, you can find the Gospel of John. And we're in chapter 13. John chapter 13. And as you're turning there, also want to give just a little uh, word of advertisement again for, I mentioned this last week, for this little book called Overflow. The subtitle is How the Joy of the Trinity Inspires Our Mission. And it very much complements and reinforces and echoes the things that we're going to be seeing as we're going through this preaching series that I began last week, going through Jesus's mission discourse in John chapters 13 to 16. So there's a number of copies of these available on a table out in the lobby. Uh, Feel free to take one. They're for free. We only ask that if you take one, you'd be committed to reading it and maybe read it on your own, or certainly you could read it within your family or among friends as well, Uh, but we encourage you to take advantage of that. It's an excellent, excellent uh, book, a little less than 100 pages, and I know you'll be encouraged by it, So, uh, so please feel free to take one. Well, I want to begin this morning, as I did last week, by reading John chapter 13, verse 1, and then I will lead us briefly in prayer again as we look to God's Word. But John chapter 13, verse 1, we hear these words. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, as we open your word, may you, by your spirit, open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that you've revealed. We need your help desperately. And we thank you that you give it abundantly and generously. And so we trust you to provide for us now for the advancement of your mission in us and through us for your glory in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, I'll remind you that we saw in the Gospel of John that there is revealed within the entire Gospel a majestic vision of truth that contains three main themes, namely the themes of glory, mission, and call. And this vision of truth throughout John's Gospel begins with the glory of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who exist in a community of holy love. And our triune God's very nature is one of mission, in that He overflows with His love and He radiates His light to draw others to participate in His eternal life. And so it is that the Father sent the Son, Jesus, and He calls on helpless sinners like you and I to respond in faith, to believe and to keep believing on Jesus, namely to follow Him. And such believing means to continually come and see Jesus as He's revealed in Scripture and to eat and drink of His saving work through faith and to abide in Him, and to go in obedience to Him, and to bear fruit for His glory. 
Well, these main themes of God's glory, mission, and call inform everything that we find in Jesus' mission discourse, his farewell discourse in chapters 13 to 16. And as I mentioned last week, verse 1 of chapter 13 really introduces the entire section and all that follows. And it tells us that Jesus knew that he was completing his mission. His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. His hour of the cross had come. And we're told there in verse 1 that he loved his own, his disciples, those who had trusted him and belonged to his new messianic community. We're told he loved them to the end. He loved them completely. He loved them comprehensively. And so everything that follows reveals Jesus' love flowing from his love with the Father through the Spirit. And all that follows is Jesus calling and preparing and commissioning his own for their mission in his absence. And everything that we find here applies to the whole church, to all of us who are Christians And here it is that we're told how the family of the triune God is to overflow with his love, with his light, and with his life-giving work in a world that hates him. And this morning, we're going to continue on in chapter 13 all the way through chapter 30, which tells us in this section, really verses 2 through 30, of two surprising things that Jesus does with his own in preparing them for his departure. The first thing that he does is that he washes their feet. We're going to see that in verses 2 through 17. And then second of all, surprisingly, he casts out one among their midst who is the betrayer. And we'll see that in verses 18 to 30. And those are the two surprising things he does. He washes his disciples' feet and he casts out his betrayer. Now, both events have to do with cleansing. They both have to do with cleansing. And they teach us an important part of the church's mission, our mission in the world. And let me just give you the main idea, the, the, the big idea, the main truth that we're going to see. It's sort of bound up in the title of the sermon. But I'll say it this way. God's people are sent to stoop, serve, and cleanse just like Jesus. God's people are sent to stoop, serve, and cleanse just like Jesus. That's the heart of everything that we're going to see in verses 2 through 30. Now, what I want to do is walk through the text and uh, explain what's going on as we hear these things unfold. And then I'll highlight several needs that the text reveals to shows us about ourselves, needs that we must humbly embrace if we're to be faithful in stooping and serving and cleansing like Jesus. So let's get into the text and see the first surprising thing here that Jesus does as he washes his disciples' feet. So notice verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let me stop here for just a bit. We're told here that Jesus, with perfect knowledge of who he was, of what the Father had given him, of why the Father had sent him, and that he was returning to his Father's presence, we're told that he takes the initiative to do what no one else in the room was doing at that time. Namely, humbly serving by washing a lot of gross, dirty feet. Now, this was a very common act of kindness and hospitality that was regularly practiced in Jesus' day. And that's why the water and the basin and the towel were all present in the home. It would kind of be like telling a guest in your home today, hey, let me take your coat and here, take a seat and let me get you something to drink and eat. It was a gesture of hospitality and kindness. And to wash your guests' feet in Jesus' day was to honor them, it was to refresh them, and it was in a very tangible way to welcome them. It was to tell them by that action, I'm glad you're here, and you have a place in my home. Welcome to my home. Now, also in that day, foot washing was a very menial task that was reserved for those of lower rank in the home, maybe a young child or maybe a household servant. And you can understand that because people in those days either walked barefoot or just with some type of sandal and they were on roads of dirt, you can understand that feet got really, really, really dirty. And so this gesture would be done as soon as somebody came into the house. It was something that would happen immediately. But not so in this upper room with Jesus and the disciples. You see, none of the disciples had taken the initiative to wash each other's feet, even though, again, the water and the towel and all, everything was there. In fact, we know from the other gospel records that at this time, these men were selfishly, proudly arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. So there's no, there's no humble serving here because great people surely don't wash other people's feet. Well, it's in that very context that during supper, Jesus quietly gets up, he readies himself, And then he begins doing the unthinkable to his undoubtedly shocked disciples. He washes their filthy, crusty feet. Well, as he begins doing this, after a bit, he's interrupted. And so we read in verse 6 and following. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, let me pause here again for a few moments. Uh, This encounter between Jesus and Peter and the dialogue that it involves, it's really the key to making sense of the whole foot washing event. Jesus comes to Peter and Peter blurts out a rhetorical question there in verse 6, a question that is clearly implying, Lord, this is wrong. You should not be doing this. This is inappropriate. Stop doing what you're doing. That's the force of Peter's rhetorical question. But Jesus, remember he's loving Peter to the end, and so he's patient with him. He says in verse 7, in essence, Peter, relax. Just relax. What I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterward you will. Now, this sense of afterward that Jesus speaks of, it probably has two levels of meaning. The first level of meaning is right after Jesus finishes washing their feet, when, as we're going to see in verses 12 through 20, he's going to give some further explanation, actually about verses 12 through verse 18. But then the second level no doubt points to sometime after Jesus' resurrection when the Holy Spirit would come and would indwell the disciples and would give them full understanding of all of Jesus' works and words. Well, so then in verse 8, Peter, and you kind of got to love Peter here, right? Impulsive, ignorant, dense, and yet with a pure heart for Jesus. He, in essence, strongly commands Jesus to stop doing what he's doing. I mean, he's very brash with him. But Jesus then responds by shutting down Peter's resistance when he says, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And what Jesus is saying there to Peter is, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no union with me. You have no fellowship with me. You have no participation with me. Peter, if I don't wash you, you're not forgiven and you have no eternal life with me. That's the significance of what he's saying. Well, Peter, of course, quickly gets the point. And so he says in verse 9, in essence, well, listen, if that's what it's at stake, then don't, don't stop with my feet. Give me the whole bath. Give me everything. And then it's in verse 10 that Jesus makes a statement which is explained in verse 11. And these two verses begin to clarify the spiritual meaning and significance of what it is that Jesus is doing. And this is so vitally important. And the reason it's important is because a lot of people would say that all that Jesus is doing, all that he's doing in washing his disciples' feet is giving us a lesson of what it means to be a humble servant. And so we should humbly serve each other too. And we're going to see that's certainly a massive part of it. But that's not all that it is. I've heard many sermons by faithful Bible-believing preachers who would suggest that's all that the lesson is. Well, you see, if Jesus was just giving a good moral lesson about being a humble servant, almost anybody would applaud that, right? I mean, any self-righteous Pharisee would applaud that. 
Any self-righteous Mormon or Muslim or Roman Catholic or pagan or politician, almost anybody would cheer for Jesus in that and all that he's showing and what it means to humbly serve others. Well, Jesus isn't showing less than that, certainly, but he's teaching and he's showing much more than that. It's more than just a simplistic, moralistic interpretation and understanding what he's doing. And so the full spiritual lesson uh, is about dirty, unbelieving hearts and dirty, sinful feet and how both are made clean only by Jesus. You see, Jesus is giving his disciples and he's giving to us a living parable. And so in verses 10 and 11, the word picture and the point are emphatic. And so again, verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And then the explanation of verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And so verse 11 explains that Jesus is making a contrast between the dirty, unbelieving heart of Judas and the clean, believing hearts of the other disciples. He's making that contrast. Now, we know he's referring to the spiritual heart condition because earlier up in verse 2, we're told that the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray him. And then Jesus explicitly tells his disciples there in verse 10, you are clean, but not every one of you. And so there's the contrast. He's saying to them, to his disciples, you have clean hearts, but not all of you have clean hearts. The one without the clean heart is the one who is going to betray him. Now, just so you know, over in chapter 15, verse 3, a little bit later in this exact same time, Jesus is going to be even more explicit with his disciples, and he's going to tell them that they are already clean because of the word that he has spoken to them. So in other words, what Jesus is affirming to them, even as he is washing their feet, is that they have been made clean by him. They have been bathed by him. And notice, they didn't bathe themselves. They didn't clean their own hearts themselves. They've been cleaned by Jesus because he's enabled them to believe and to receive his word. And so in verse 10 of chapter 13, what Jesus is saying is that though he has bathed their hearts, making them clean, and ultimately, as we're going to see too, this is accomplished through his sacrificial death that is soon to happen, even though their hearts have been bathed and made clean, they still get their feet dirty in this world. He's saying there's still sin that needs to be cleansed, even though your heart has been made clean before God. And we know there's a lot of sin because we're going to see that evidenced in the disciples during this time. There's pride, there's selfishness, there's division, there's unbelief, there's cowardice. There's all kinds of issues that they're dealing with. Jesus, in essence, is saying, you belong in my father's home. You're welcome in my father's home, 
but there's sin that yet needs to be dealt with. So he's both assuring and welcoming and comforting them, but also addressing the fact that there is sin that still needs to be dealt with. And so in the assurance of his love, they must always let Jesus clean their dirty feet, must let him expose and cleanse their sin. Well, there's even more to the lesson that Jesus has, and this is what we see as we move on into verses 12 and following. I'll read through verse 17. And so we read in verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Now, this is something of a rhetorical question as well, because they certainly understood what he had done But they did not understand the full meaning and significance of what he had done. And so he goes on to explain in verse 13 and following. He says there in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And in this statement, he's affirming their God-given insight into his identity. He's the teacher and he's the master in authority from whom they are to learn and imitate. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And with these words in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is revealing and giving a clear binding obligation for Jesus' disciples in what he's doing and what he's saying. And this is very straightforward. Just like Jesus, who in love has humbly stooped to serve them and to cleanse their sin, so he is now sending them. He's commissioning them to go and do likewise. And this applies not only to them, but to all of his disciples, to every one of us who belong to him through faith. We're to go and do likewise. Well, then it's very interesting. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus motivates their obedience to this obligation by both stating a truth and giving a promise for blessing. And so here's the truth in verse 16. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's clearly implying he is the great master. He is the great sender. And his disciples are his beloved slaves, his beloved sent ones. And so he's lovingly saying to them, ultimately to all of us, you know my identity. And you know your place in relationship to me. I'm your master. I'm your teacher. And I'm the one sending you. And the implication is yours is to trust and to obey all that I'm commanding. But notice then Jesus doesn't end there. You see, he's not a harsh, cruel taskmaster who's just barking out orders uh, to his people. And remember, what has he just done? He's just demonstrated his love for these men by humbly stooping to serve and to cleanse them. And so he gives this word of promise in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, friends, here's the key to knowing God's blessings. 
to knowing the good life as he has designed it, living in his favor is to receive the fullness of Christ's humble love for you, his service to you, and his cleansing of you, and then in receiving all that he is and all that he has done to trust and obey his command and imitate him by humbly loving, serving, and cleansing others. And you say, cleansing others? Well, what, what does that mean? Well, we'll come to that in a few moments, okay? But for now, we see in verses 2 through 17, this first surprising thing that Jesus does. He washes his disciples' feet. Well, with that as a backdrop, now in verse 18, Jesus is going to pick up his thought from verse 10 regarding Judas. And so what he begins to say in verse 18 provides a transition to the second surprising thing that Jesus does with his disciples, as we'll read of it through verse 30, when he casts out his betrayer. But let's hear verse 18 and, and, and a few verses past that. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. He's speaking of his sovereign election of his own. Jesus chose them. He goes on to say, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He says, verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so in love, Jesus is comforting and he's assuring the faith of his disciples so that they won't be shaken when Judas betrays him. That's what he's doing. He's wanting to comfort and assure them. He's letting his disciples know that this betrayal was actually prophesied of in scripture. He's making reference to Psalm 41 verse 9 with that statement. So he doesn't want them to be surprised or undone when Judas betrays him and when all the events that follow are going to take place. He wants them to know that what Judas is about to do, which is going to result in Jesus being handed over to crucifixion, he wants them to know that all of this is happening according to the sovereign plan, purpose, and promise of God. He's assuring them. He's comforting them. But now as the text continues, the scene intensifies. So verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. There was absolutely no indication of who this might be. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, it's likely because of what follows that not everybody heard Jesus say this. 
But we read there the middle of verse 26. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. What an ominous final word this is at the end of verse 30. Clearly, the implication is that the devil's night of spiritual darkness had now fully arrived. The disciples didn't fully understand it then, but they would understand it, of course, afterward. They would also understand that the darkness would not overcome God's saving love, light, and life in Jesus. But you see, in these events, and then what follows is that in casting Judas out, Jesus, and notice Jesus is fully in command of what's taking place, he he cleanses his community of disciples from the impure influence of this wicked, false, fake disciple. And he also put in motion, as I mentioned, what would result in his crucifixion, his preeminent act of stooping, serving, and cleansing. He put in motion that which would result in his substitutionary death on the cross. And you see, the living parable of foot washing that Jesus had just performed, it ultimately also anticipated and pointed to the much greater work of soul washing that he would accomplish through his death. In other words, what's shocking and what's surprising in these events is not simply that Jesus, the teacher and the Lord, would rise from the table and lay aside his outer garments and wrap himself with a towel and pour out water and clean dirty feet. That was indeed surprising and shocking. But what's ultimately surprising and shocking and what's truly life-giving and what is our only hope is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would rise from heaven and he would lay aside the privileges of his deity and he would wrap himself with the robe of humanity and he would pour out his blood, his precious blood in death to cleanse dirty souls. The foot washing was a living parable anticipating that infinitely greater reality. And so what we see in this is that Jesus willingly submitted to his father and he went to the cross to be the Passover lamb, to be that substitutionary lamb that would take away, that would cleanse the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29. He went to the cross to be the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, as Jesus said in John chapter 10. He went to the cross to be the one of greatest love who laid down his life for his friends, as he'll tell his disciples in chapter 15. And he went to the cross to be the one who would drink the full cup of the Father's wrath, 
to pour out his precious blood for the forgiveness and for the cleansing of all who would believe on him. And thus, in the book of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we read that the blood of Jesus, his God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's his blood, his death, by which all who believe in him are cleansed. And so now for Jesus' disciples, both then and now, we who believe and are his own, we who are his family, we who are his church, we who live by faith in the love, light, and life of his forgiveness and cleansing, he sends us, he sends us to imitate him by stooping to serve and to cleanse each other. So now back to that question, what does it mean to stoop and to serve and to cleanse one another? What's it look like to live in this way? Well, throughout this whole text that I've just walked through, verses 1 through 30, we see at least four different needs that you and I must humbly embrace. Needs which, if we embrace and own, will help us know how to faithfully stoop and serve and cleanse like Jesus. So here's the first need. You and I need cleansing. You and I need cleansing. We are dirty with sin in God's eyes, and we need to be cleansed. And this is certainly clear from the whole context, especially verses 6 through 11, and the spiritual meaning that Jesus assigns to washing and cleansing. You see, every single one of us, until we come to faith in Jesus, until we trust him, we have unclean, sinful, dirty hearts that are alienated from God and under his wrath. Now, the particular expressions and activities of our sin are going to vary from person to person, but at the core in our hearts, that's the issue. We're alienated from him. We are dirty and sinful before we come to faith in him. That's why, for instance, the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not measuring our sin according to any human standards, our own or anybody else's, but being measured according to the standards of God's glory, of His holiness, of His righteousness, of His law. We all fall short of the glory of God. But you see, the hope is found in that when a person repents and trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... When a person hears and receives God's word by faith, instantly we're forgiven of all of our sins and our hearts are made clean in God's eyes. We're reconciled to him and we're brought into the fullness of his blessings. He has bathed us. He brings us to faith. And so just like Jesus' disciples, however, for those who have been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... We can still get dirty feet in this world. We still are prone to sin in our attitudes, in our actions, in our affections, in our words, in all kinds of ways. We get dirty feet in this world. Our hearts have been changed, 
but we still sin and we need to be cleansed. And that's part of the lesson that comes out of this is that, listen, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, your heart needs to be cleansed or you are currently under God's wrath. And he holds before you his love and his care and his provision in Christ to trust Christ and be forgiven and reconciled to God, your creator. And for those who have been, he wants us to know we're still prone to sin. And just even as these disciples were somewhat ignorant of that reality, we can even be prone to that reality too, can't we? But we need to be reminded that we need cleansing. And just like those men that were in the upper room, we can be guilty of the same kinds of sins, can't we? Pride and selfishness and unbelief and greed and letting fear and anxiety and all kinds of things overtake us. We're just like them. And so if we're going to faithfully stoop, serve, and cleanse others just like Jesus, we need to embrace the fact that we, that we, as much as anyone, need regular cleansing. We need to humbly embrace this truth and this reality. We need regular cleansing. Well, this leads to a second need that we see, and this is self-evident, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. You and I need Jesus. Jesus made it clear to Peter, didn't he? In verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. The cleansing from sin that we so desperately need is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. In faith, we must continually trust and submit to the cleansing that Jesus has accomplished through the shedding of his blood. And we must trust him. This is true at the beginning of our walk with him. And it's true throughout our walk with him. He and he alone is the one we need. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves of our sin by any good works that we might do, by any willpower that we might try to conjure up. We can't cleanse ourselves by ignoring or denying or hiding or trying to hide our sin. We can't cleanse our sin by any amount of religious rituals that we might try to perform. There's nothing that we can do. It's always only fully Jesus and Jesus alone who cleanses us from our sin. The sufficiency of his precious blood, which he poured out once and for all as a substitute on the cross for everyone who would trust him. And you see, this is our hope. Jesus is welcoming these men. He's, he's comforting them. He's assuring them that their hearts have been cleansed by God's grace. They've, they've come to faith. They've received his word, but there's still sin to be dealt with. But it's all happening in the context of, you have a place in my father's house. You belong. Let's deal with this sin. Reminds us of uh, what I read a little bit of earlier in 1 John chapter 1. Let me just read a bit more from verses 7 through 9 in 1 John chapter 1. We hear these words. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to both forgive and to cleanse again and again and again. That doesn't mean we, we come to saving faith 
again and again, but it means if we've come to saving faith, we can confess our sins in the assurance that the forgiveness is ours, his forgiveness is ours, his cleansing is ours. And so only Jesus is the one who cleanses our sinful hearts and also our sinful feet. And we know his forgiveness and cleansing as we confess our sins to him, as we acknowledge and agree with him that, yes, my attitude was wrong, my words were wrong, my affections were wrong, what I looked at was wrong. Whatever it may be, as we confess, he forgives and he cleanses and fellowship is restored. And so we need to humbly embrace the fact that, number one, we need cleansing. Number two, we need Jesus. And then number three, you and I need the local church. You and I need the local church. This is the weight and the implication of Jesus' command in verses 14 and 15 that all of his disciples are to follow his example in washing one another's feet. You see, this is what it means to do that. It means to love one another. As a little bit later in verses 34 and 35, Jesus will make explicitly clear. And you see, again, by implication, what this is picturing for us, what, is this, what this is explaining for us, is that a local church in God's design is a community of his people who participate in his love, in his light, and in his life-giving work. It's a community of people who have had our hearts cleansed by Jesus, and now he's working in us and through us in accordance with his word and by his Holy Spirit to continually cleanse our feet. And he is designed to use each of us with one another in that very process. And so you see, friends, this is really the essence of what the life of a local church is all about. It's the mutual devotion of believers who lovingly, humbly are stooping to serve and cleanse each other just like Jesus. Now, none of us can die a substitutionary death for one another. That is he and he alone who accomplished that and did that. But now, in the love and in the light and the life of what he's accomplished, we're to imitate his humble sacrifice in serving and cleansing one another. We're to be devoted to Jesus and to one another for the growth and for the advancement of his saving and cleansing work in all of us. And so we should be growing in humbly recognizing that we each need cleansing and that each of our brothers and sisters need cleansing. And Jesus has called us to be servants of one another of his cleansing work in each other's lives. And so the local church means mutual foot washing, every believer sharing in this. That's the force and the implication. We're, we're helping one another. We're pointing each other to Jesus and his cleansing work continually. Practically, well, what does it mean? What does it look like? Well, it means a number of things that we humbly and eagerly and regularly gather with each other to sing and to pray and to hear God's word. And to share in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper together. For every believer, that should be our impulse in joining with our family. When the family gathers to share in what God's purposes are for us. 
It means that we're to humbly pray for the spiritual and material needs of each other. We're to speak God's word, his truth to one another in love, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, and to build each other up. And in so doing, we wash with the water of God's word, as it were. And we strive to be humble and wise, of course, in doing this, knowing that sometimes this means words of comfort and encouragement and promise. And at other times, it may mean words of admonishment and confrontation and warning. And of course, we also look for and strive to respond to practical physical needs. And in all of this, love is always the motive and cleansing that brings refreshment, that brings growth, that brings Christ-likeness is always the goal. It's mutual ministry. It's what it means to, to be God's people in a, in a local church. And so humbly, we're to both give and receive. I need to wash your feet. You need to wash my feet. We're to give and receive humbly in all of this. And all of this strengthens our corporate witness, witness for Christ to a world that desperately needs to know him. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 to 8. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One commentator has said, the servants of the servant will want to serve like he did. That's the heart of it. The local church, you see, is God's design for the furthering of Christ's serving, cleansing work in us and through us to a world of darkness. And so we need to see that we need cleansing. We need to see our need of Jesus as the only one who accomplishes that cleansing. We need to see his design and purpose for the church. And then a final need that we see is that you and I need biblical comfort and assurance. You and I need biblical comfort and assurance. And I made mention to this earlier as we were looking at chapter 13. But just like the men with Jesus in the upper room... We live in a dark, sinful, and painful world. And just as they would be impacted by the sin of Judas, we likewise are often impacted by the sin of other people, as well as our own, of course, both directly and indirectly. And so Jesus said what he said, and he did what he did in casting out Judas from the disciples in large part, as I mentioned, to comfort them, to assure them, to let them know that what was going to happen with Judas had been prophesied in Scripture. And so he's giving them biblical comfort and assurance to strengthen their faith in his word. You and I need the same biblical comfort and assurance and encouragement, don't we? 
We don't need platitudes. We don't need nice little sayings that have no real content to them. We need God's truth. We need God's promises. And that's part of how we minister to one another and serve one another in holding such promises before one another in a very troubled-filled, painful, grievous world. To keep looking to Jesus, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep knowing that God has, has told us these things are going to be taking place even as they are. And to persevere in trusting Him and knowing Him and bearing witness of Christ in this world. So, beloved, those are our needs. We need cleansing. We need Jesus. We need the local church. And we need biblical comfort and assurance. And this is how we minister to one another. This is how we wash one another's feet. This is how we stoop and serve and cleanse like Jesus. I'll just close with three questions that I would encourage you to think about today and into the week. Just three questions. Number one, who? Who? Who are the specific people in your life that God is calling you to humbly serve and cleanse in the cleansing of Jesus? Who are the specific people? And then a second question, what? What? What are the specific ways God wants you to humbly serve and cleanse them for the sake of Jesus? And then a final question, when? When? When do you purpose to follow through with those people that God is calling you in specific ways to serve and to minister to for the sake of Jesus? Beloved, it's the power, it's the beauty of God's love, light, and life-giving work in Jesus that he seeks to display through us who are his people. And we have that privilege in this mission that he has called us to, to share in his life and to do so with one another, and to bear witness to the world of who he is and why they need to trust him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And even as you told us uh, that as your word abides in us, as we would abide in you, that we would ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. I pray that your word would bear the fruit you've designed it to bear in my life, and in the life of my brothers and sisters here, of, of everyone that is present and within the hearing of this, that you would be pleased to accomplish your purposes for their greatest joy and blessing in trusting you and for your glory in them both individually and through us collectively as your people. We trust you to do so even more than what we could ask or imagine for your name in Christ. Amen. Amen.